Welcome to The Money Spot, the show where we answer your money questions. I'm your host, Heather Katsongo Woodward, and in this week's episode, Angela asks a very detailed question about starting to invest. Hi, Heather. Happy New Year. I'm a big fan of yours and have been following you for a while. I bought all your three books. I would like to open a stocks and shares ISA for myself and two children, age 16 and 14. But I don't know where to start due to fear of risk. I want to invest 15% of my income in stocks and also considering real estate. I've seen some recommendations like Vanguard or Have Griefs Lansdowne, but I'm clueless what to go for. I'm a nurse and the only debt I have is repayment mortgage. I just finished paying off credit card debt. I saw your post on Malawi Queens. Please help. Thank you. My name is Angela, by the way. Angela, congratulations on getting rid of all your credit card debt. You must be super proud of yourself. And a massive thank you for supporting me by buying my books. Book sales are helping to pay for the production of the Money Spot podcast. So I really don't take your purchase for granted. It's really appreciated. So... Stocks and shares ices. When it comes to investing in stocks and shares ices, you should target a minimum investment period of five years, and ideally, you should invest for much longer than that. Is the money that you want to save for your children for university or for something else? As you haven't told me, I'm going to assume to contribute towards the cost of university. One important thing you need to keep in mind is that Although tuition fees are given to students as long as they apply for them, the maintenance alone is assessed according to household wealth. Basically, children that come from wealthier households are eligible for a smaller maintenance allowance than children that come from poorer households. Only children from households with a total income of less than £25,000 will qualify for the full maintenance loan. In addition, students that live at home get a smaller maintenance allowance and those that attend universities outside of London also qualify for a lower maintenance loan. In my opinion, the less debt your children can get themselves into by the time they graduate, the more disposable income they'll have when they land their first jobs and the faster they can save for a deposit on a mortgage. If you want to read a little more about what you might need to contribute towards university costs, have a look at the moneysavingexpert.com website. The site has a ready-made calculator that will tell you exactly how much you need to save for each child to contribute towards the compulsory portion that the government essentially needs to be filled. And for parents that don't want to contribute to their children's education, then it's how much their children will need to earn from a university job in order to fill that gap. The calculator is amazing because it also tells you exactly how much you need to save every month starting from today to make sure you have enough by the time your children start university. So I'll start with your child that's age 16. For your 16-year-old, saving in a stocks and shares ISA is too risky because university is just around the corner and the stock market generally doesn't offer good returns for periods of less than five years. The safest option for your 16-year-old is probably to save in a high-interest account, and this might not be a cash ISA, by the way, so do shop around. The best rates are found 
at the moment are about 1.45 to 1.65%, which is fine, but you might get a fall in the stock market if you try to go for the stock market for this child. Now, for your child who's aged 14, you could put money away for five years and a stocks and shares ISA starts to make sense and be more attractive here. Again, use the calculator on Money Saving Expert for an idea of how much you'll need to contribute each month if you don't want your child to have to work through university. How about your own ISA? For your own ISA, you have a limit of £20,000 a year. If you prefer, you can save all the money that you want to save for yourself and your children into your own ISA rather than splitting it between junior ISAs and your own ISA because it'll mean that you have more control over the money. Money saved into a junior ISA is legally your child's when that child turns 18. So the named beneficiary essentially on a junior ISA takes over control of it when they become 18 and they can choose how to spend it. You would have no control over that whatsoever, which isn't necessarily a problem. If you know how well you bring up your children, you know that they're going to be responsible. Now risk. In your question, you say you're quite risk averse. So before I tackle where you should save, I will say that you have every right to fear taking risk with your money. You've worked hard to earn it, so you should rightfully want to preserve what you've earned. The safest path, if you're investing in shares, is to avoid selecting single stocks and to invest in a diversified mutual fund or index fund. There are two main types of fund to choose between, actively managed funds and passively managed funds, and I'll tell you the difference between the two. With a passively managed fund, you track a whole market. For example, the S&P 500 for the US, which tracks the 500 largest US companies, or the FTSE 100 for the UK. Alternatively, instead of tracking the whole market in a given country, you can choose to invest in a specific sector. For example, in utilities, which tend to be quite safe, or in technology, which tends to be quite volatile, or in retail, which tends to be seasonal. During booms, retail does well. During recessions, retail does not do so well. And there are many other sectors other than these three that I've just mentioned. With actively managed funds, uh, you have an actual human being choosing what shares will outperform the market and investing exclusively in those. The objective of an active fund manager is to beat a specific index, while the objective of a passive fund is to match the return on an index. Now, you'd think the fund managers, by being clever professionals that have spent years of trading and have tons of experience, are the ones to go for, right? Wrong. History suggests that over 95% of the time, managers don't beat the index. Not only that, the fees on actively managed funds are higher. And by the way, my figure of 95% is plucked out of the air. Depending on who you listen to, you'll get a different number, but it's always something like 3% have outperformed or like a really ridiculous number outperform. So the vast majority of active fund managers disappoint in the long run. And the cheapest are like about half percent for actively managed funds nowadays. And the most expensive can charge you in the region of 2% or more. Many passive funds now charge you less than 0.2% or what industry professionals call 20 basis points. How can you improve your risk appetite? 
to improve your risk, how you feel about the stock market going up and down, I'd say you just need to improve your understanding of how the stock market works. And I'd recommend two investment books for you that I found particularly useful. And if you can get the audio versions, even better. Look for Charlie Munger, The Complete Investor by Trent Griffin. And Charlie Munger is actually Warren Buffett's sidekick. I found this book really good for figuring out how the buy and hold investment strategy works and also a lot about their psychology of investing. Then another book I found really helpful is Common Sense Investing by Joan Bogle. And Joan Bogle is actually the guy that invented passive investing. And he died, I think, in 2019 or 2018, pretty recently. Really smart guy. And I think he breaks down why just tracking an index is the most sensible option for most people. So which platform should you use for investing? I personally use something called iWeb for shared dealing because they're the cheapest, but I wouldn't recommend iWeb for most people because you can't automate your investing. That said, iWeb have a good fund center that helps you sort through the different indices that you can invest in and allows you to order them in all sorts of different ways. For example, you can sort the funds or if you're investing in specific shares from the ones with the lowest fees to the ones with the highest fees or starting with the ones that have enjoyed the highest return. You can also look exclusively at different sectors that you might want to invest in. For example, right now, technology is enjoying pretty good returns. And I don't put too much into tech because it's volatile, it goes up fast and it can also come down fast. But I do like to see what the different sectors are doing. Even if you ultimately choose to invest using a different platform, you might want to use iWeb for stock selection if their analysis tools are better than where you end up. iWeb's fund center is actually easier for discovery, I find, than Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hargreaves Lansdowne seem to have a vested interest in people selecting actively managed funds, so the ones that don't tend to outperform the market. So those show up more predominantly on Hargreaves Lansdowne's website. They don't seem, for example, to have a tool that allows you to just look at absolutely every fund they offer and order them by fees. If I just haven't found this function, can someone please help a sister out and send me a link? So what platform should you choose between the two options that you've given me as examples, Hargreaves Lansdowne and Vanguard? These are two actually very different options. By the way, from now on, I'm going to call Hargreaves Lansdowne HL. The likes of Vanguard only offer their own funds. This isn't a bad thing necessarily, but it would mean you need to be sure you don't want to invest in any other fund manager's products. And that's a hard position for a beginner to take. So for that reason, I wouldn't recommend Vanguard to start off with. The likes of HL offer you access to a large universe of fund managers. HL don't create any funds. They're essentially just a supermarket for fund managers. The difference between Vanguard and HL is like the difference between shopping at Aldi and shopping at Sainsbury's. If you want choice, you go to Sainsbury's. If you're not bothered about choice and you want to just save money, you go to Aldi. I'm comparing Aldi as a Vanguard here, but you're mostly only going to find Aldi's own brands at Aldi. Vanguard. This is not a perfect analogy, but it's not a bad one. Vanguard's passively managed index funds are known for being very cost-effective but their platform charges in the UK are not the cheapest. The likes of Fidelity have a hybrid model. They'll offer you their own funds, you know, like Vanguard does, but they'll also offer you other fund managers' products, 
But if you use their tools for selecting what you should invest in, which I did to write this piece for you, the resulting suggestion is usually one of their own funds. So you need to keep in mind uh, what people's or companies' ulterior motives are when you're choosing between different platforms. The biggest driver, I would say, is the fees. You should look at the fees, then at customer service and how easy the platform is to use. I'll give you a quick rundown of what different fees mean. So firstly, you'll have platform fees, and these are charged basically for you using a specific platform. Vanguard charge 0.15%, HL 0.45%, iWeb, the ones I use, charge nothing. They have no platform fees. You just have a sign-up fee of £25. Halifax charge £12.50 a year, which is very reasonable. And Fidelity charge 0.35%. And there are lots more, but basically I went through these websites before I wrote this piece to see what I might recommend to you. Either way, if you have less than £50,000 to be invested, the difference in fees is not that dramatic. But as you start approaching quarter of a million pounds in investments, you will feel the difference. Once you get to about 250k invested, and trust me, you will get there, you will. On iWeb, you'd be paying about 60 pounds per year if you trade once a month, basically whenever you get your paycheck. And on HL, you'd be paying 1,125 for the same amount of assets, 60 quid versus over a thousand quid. That is a big difference. That's why my little tip for investing on iWeb is because I invest for both my husband and I, instead of splitting monthly investments in half, so half goes into his account and is invested there and half comes to me and I invest there. Each month I just do one trade either for me or for him. And the net result is that we do six trades each year and this saves 60 pounds in dealing costs every year. Obviously, I could save even more by doing just one trade a year, but as our incomes are paid monthly, it's better to invest monthly rather than just keep all the money in a savings account for one trade at the end of the year. I'd end up losing all the gains I make within the year. Anyway, that's the side point. I'm just trying to show you that the platform fees can add up, but just so that you get a feel for investing, you shouldn't be too bothered by the platform fees because the difference if you've got 50K and under is not big. Then you need to think about transaction fees. And these are the fees that you'll pay each time you do a trade. These can be a fixed sum or a percentage. Some platforms will have one charge for buying and a different charge for selling shares. And sometimes they'll have a different charge for shares versus funds. So shares means buying an Apple or a Facebook share and funds means diversified funds. On Vanguard, it depends on the product, but it ranges from like 0.02%, so like really tiny to close to 2%. On HL, you pay nothing for buying funds, but you pay £12 each time you buy shares. And if you trade a lot, which I don't think you will, it becomes £6 if you trade more than 20 times in a month. On iWeb, it's a flat £5. On Halifax, it's £12.50 a share or £2 per month if you automate all your investing. And on Fidelity, it's £10 a share or £1.50 if you automate all your investing. This is a lot of numbers for you, but you can go to the resources and see a summary of all these fees. Because Fidelity's platform fees are cheaper than HL, I was very tempted to recommend them to you, but I think you need to make the decision. I am not going to tell you what to do. 
I'm giving you a little exercise here. Anyone can do this exercise if you're just studying out in investing. Spend an hour a day on each of the following three sites. Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is hl.co.uk, or you can do a Google. Fidelity and Halifax. Download their shared dealing apps. Hargreaves Lansdowne and Fidelity have one. Halifax doesn't seem to. I don't think this is a problem. And see what you think of them. If by the end of the analysis you're not sure, then I'm going to suggest you use HL as a beginner. As you figure out how things work, move to the platform that you think is the cheapest or more convenient for you. And it's very easy to do. You can move from platform to platform quite easily. And sometimes the platform will do a lot of the work for you. Also, it's worth mentioning that I pulled a couple of funds that I invest in on Fidelity's website. And you pay more for them via Fidelity than at HL because HL negotiates discounts with actively managed funds because of the volume of business that they're directing their way. So this is a little thing to keep in mind. Now, I've spoken a lot about investing as I felt that that's what you wanted me to focus on. But I think this discussion wouldn't be complete without me saying that ultimately, if the stock market scares you, then you can go the property route entirely. Have you heard of something called the three-for-one strategy for property? There are many strategies you can follow with property, and the three-for-one is basically just one of them. With this strategy, you set a goal of investing in three buy-to-let properties, and you work to have all the mortgages paid off by the time you retire. This would mean you live in one fully paid-off house, and you'd live off the rent of three properties. This reduces the risk, obviously, because if there's no tenant in one, at least you've got two rents coming in, etc. For each buy-to-let property, you should target a given amount of rent that you want to earn, and you should choose this number yourself. For me, I always target a minimum earning of £1,000 a month, or if I can see that the rent has the potential to grow to £1,000 a month, I'm happy to buy something that will earn me, say, 800 750 to start off with. So for example, if you decided you'd go for an average of 800 per month, then you'd retire on 2,400 per month, which is 800 times three. This would be roughly linked to inflation because as prices rise, rents also tend to rise. And sometimes rental increases can be far faster than just general property increases. For example, my husband and I bought one property. The average rent on that street was like 1,100 pounds. When we moved away from that street, literally five years later, the rent we got was more than doubled, it was 2,350. So rents can rise at a shocking rate. There are many strategies you can follow with property. You can rent to families or to students or even another subset of people. One of my friends specializes in letting property to migrant truck drivers. Now, keep in mind that letting to students or any sort of migrant group like the truck drivers has a high turnover, which means you need a lot of time to manage your portfolio. And if you don't want that, don't choose that particular type of rental business. And if you went down the Airbnb route, that's like managing a hotel because you have to think about changing sheets and cleaning literally week on week and sometimes from day to day. But as involving as it sounds, I have a friend who has a full-time job as a professor and has also grown a good property portfolio on the side. Less than 10 properties, but you know, that is good. 
and she's got a mix of Airbnb and family lets. She's basically set up contracts with cleaners. So as soon as people check out, she gets cleaners to move in and clean. And she says it's actually really profitable and it's not as bad as she expected. The key with property is just the first property. You just need to start. If this feels like it would be safer for you, and if you have at least 20 years until retirement, then think about either just going for the three for one property strategy. And in the long run, in addition to this, having a good lump sum saved in a savings account so that if you are going to have the unlikely instance of having all three properties empty, you've got something to fall back on. It is less risky. And you can also do a combination strategy whereby you invest a small portion in the stock market and you can also invest some in property. And I'm not going to go into it at all here, but in addition to direct property investment, you can invest in property through the stock market using something called real estate investment trusts. As your question is more about not wanting to take too much risk, I have focused on direct property investment, which personally I prefer. I've said a lot of stuff there's there and there's plenty for you to think about. I massively enjoyed answering this question, Angela, especially from a fellow Malawian. It's nice to know that other people from where I come from are investing and getting wealth focused. But before you go off to enjoy yourself, let's summarize what you need to do after this episode. One, to reduce your fear of stock markets. You need to read widely, and I've recommended you start off by reading Charlie Munger, The Complete Investor by Trent Griffin, and Common Sense Investing by John Bogle. Two, spend one hour on different nights on platforms you could potentially use for investing. I suggested hl.co.uk, Fidelity, and Halifax as good places to start. Three, if you're going to invest in property, Think about the ideal type of client for you. Is it families or students or some other group like my friend who goes for truck drivers? Four, if you're going to invest in property, also think about whether you're going to try to follow a given model. I gave examples of the three-for-one strategy and Airbnb, but there are many more. And you can have a strategy within a strategy. So for the three-for-one strategy, you can have a mix of one property is going to be family, another is going to be uh, students, and the other one is going to be high multiple occupancy, aka HMO. And that way, maybe you can test out the different models. It's up to you, and it all depends on what you think you have appetite for. Now you can really go off to enjoy yourself. Thank you for asking this question. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you want to ask me a question, read my blogs, or support this show in any way, please type themoneyspot.co.uk into your address bar and you'll be redirected to my personal website.